Good afternoon. It's Friday the 22nd of July 2022, just after one o'clock. Uh, welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Well, program, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and joining us by video link is Ian Davis. Uh, well, we'll get straight on with the Tory leadership because there was another vote on Wednesday. And uh, well, it's down to the final two. The knockout match. The knockout match. So we've got Rishi and we've got the wonderful Liz. And look, here's what she's tweeting out because uh, what else would she be saying? She's going to keep us safe. And uh, this has to be the narrative of the last two years, Patrick. Everything is justified under the notion of keeping the country safe and keeping the people safe. We're going to be coming on to that with respect to Australia later on. This is the Big Brother platform up here on screen. It is indeed. 3% defence spending. Yes. That's a good handout to the defence uh, contractors and the delivery of a new fleet. What sort of fleet, Mike? Of submarines. Apparently, really? yes. Oh, that'll be uh, all, interesting. All kinds of useful stuff there. Is that before or after the aircraft carriers become operational? That's a good question, but you'll notice that this is the war uh, platform without question. This is the war platform. But uh, the question is, the question is, how qualified is Liz uh, to uh, push for a war platform? Because uh, if we look at this uh, tweet from Chris Bryant, here, um, here's Liz Truss. Couldn't even remember a single instance of her raising human rights with a leader of a Gulf state, despite saying we needed to wean ourselves off dependence on authoritarian regimes. Now, he tweeted this out a couple of days ago. Uh, this was with respect to evidence that she gave uh, in front of his committee. Um, so let's just have a quick look at uh, how she did at that. Uh, we need to queue up the video. You were talking about authoritarian regimes earlier. And you've said that the UK should be a robust counterweight to authoritarian regimes and that we are ending our dependency on authoritarian regimes for energy. How would you describe the Gulf states? I would describe the uh, Gulf states as partners of the United Kingdom. We're currently negotiating a trade deal with the GCC. Now, is every country that we work with uh, exactly in line with United Kingdom policy on everything. No, they're not, but they are important allies of the United Kingdom. Hang on, Mohammed bin Salman, um, responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, no? Yeah? I, what I would say is that Saudi Arabia is, is an important partner of the United Kingdom. 81 executions all on one day in Saudi Arabia, and you, you don't think that that's an authoritarian regime? What I'm focused on is making sure that we are dealing with the major threats to the world. The number one threat we're dealing with at the moment is the threat from Russia. In order to do that, we need to make sure that we have alternative energy sources. And one of the key sources of energy is the Gulf region. We're not dealing in a perfect world. We're dealing in a world where we need to make Difficult, difficult decisions. And I think it is right that we build that closer trading relationship with the Gulf states. If a country is an authoritarian regime, it's fine to do business with it as long as the authoritarianism is only within its own borders. Is that right? What, we, what we're facing with Russia is a regime that is actively seeking to invade sovereign nations. So I'd like to see the evidence for that, first of all. But the other point here is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Saudi Arabia's been bombing a, a sovereign nation for quite a number of years now. It's been bombing its neighbor Yemen uh, since March of 2015. How many years is that? I think this was the uh, seventh year yes. uh, this just had passed. And that's with the, the help of the British military, of the United States military, of the French and the Spanish as well. But mainly the US and the British have been prosecuting the war against Yemen by using, effectively using Saudi as their proxy. They would have normally done this years ago, but the Iraq thing was kind of messy and kind of screwed up the whole imperialist uh, plan in the Middle East. So they've had to outsource uh, their geopolitics to what they call local enforcers in the Pentagon. Uh, so that's really what the Yemen conflict is. And Saudi has been dragged into it and almost bankrupted by it in the process. So this is another reason why you're seeing the Gulf states kind of veer away from the Biden administration or the Obama-Biden administration because of issues just like this. And it doesn't seem like Liz Truss really has a clue 
uh, what's going on. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but she doesn't need a clue because undoubtedly she will uh, end up being a leader, or at least that's my forecast. The wartime the president. Wartime president, yes. Uh, perhaps Rishi could win it, but let's wait and see. And that, that hashtag that was trending this week, did you see that? It was pound, Poundland Thatcher. Uh, Did you see that? Yeah. That was interesting. Yes. I, I, I don't make up these hashtags, but they're trending. Yes, indeed. So uh, she's clearly on a war footing, but then she, she is a, a absolutely one of these types of leaders that simply follows the orders, as the saying goes. Um, now, let's uh, move on to interest rates and, of course, uh, massive pressure on economies and so on, standards of living, cost of living, whatnot. Uh, the EU, well, this is Christine Lagarde a couple of years ago when she took the job as uh, head of the European Central Bank. She was very excited, if you remember, to be signing the uh, Euro banknotes for the first time. Uh, but anyway, she's made a, a comment uh, uh, with respect to interest rates. Uh, last, I think this was last week, the ECB will be raising interest rates by 0.25% in July. Uh, but unfortunately, by yesterday, that had changed. Uh, to the ECB has raised interest rates by 0.5% in July. This is the first time the European Central Bank has raised interest rates in 11 years. Um, and in fact, the last time it changed interest rates at all uh, was uh, in September 2019, when it reduced the, uh, the main policy rate from zero, minus 0.4% to minus 0.5%. So as a result, then they've got three key interest rates, uh, because the Europeans need three presidents and three interest rates. That's the way it works. in in Europe. Uh, so this is the way it looks. Uh, they're, they're, none of them are in negative territory anymore. So the question then is, what does this mean for the UK? Well, uh, really, this sets a precedent for what Andrew Bailey might do uh, next month, or at least the Bank of England might do. Here's the Three Stooges. Uh, these, this was at the, uh, uh, at the City of London uh, speeches, the uh, uh, Mansion House speeches that were taking place. Uh, and of course, as a result of Nadeem Zahawi's uh, uh, announcements, these now are one team, uh, the UK government, the City of London and uh, the Bank of England, all veneer has dropped away and they've announced they're formally one team now. But anyway, Andrew Bailey uh, commenting on this was uh, saying that at the Monetary Policy Committee's last meeting, we adopted language which made it clear that if we see signs of greater persistence of inflation and price and wage setting would be such signs. Uh, we will have to act forcefully. Uh, and so he's saying in simple terms, this means that a 0.5% or 50 basis points, as he puts it, increase will be among the choices on the table when we next meet. So it's looking very likely that uh, we're going to see significant, uh, significant in terms of the last, uh, you know, batch of years anyway, significant increases in interest rates. And that, of course, is going to affect people in terms of uh, mortgage repayments and rents because the rents will go up uh, in sync, probably. And, and looks like the stagflation cycle is going to hit Europe pr pretty hard. So this might actually exacerbate yes. uh, the already bad inflationary situation. And the euro is not performing particularly well uh, as a currency either, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the dollar. It's just overtaken recently by the dollar. So the big problems uh, in the Eurozone, a lot of uh, unhappy people uh, in the community of Europe. Uh, indeed. Okay, well, let's let's move on to health matters then and uh, welcome Ian Davis to the programme. Uh, Ian, uh, on Wednesday, well, on, I think on Monday's programme, uh, Debbie Evans made the point that the BBC was about to uh, uh, launch its latest documentary entitled Unvaccinated on the World on Wednesday night. Uh, they did do that. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? Well, um, I got wind of that the BBC made an announcement, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about this uh, forthcoming documentary, and I got I got wind of it. So I, I made the cardinal writer's sin of writing a prediction. So um, I, I predicted what might be in that documentary, uh, or and more, I think more importantly, what won't be in the documentary. Um, well, call it a documentary. I think that's uh, that's debatable. Um, and I predicted basically that it would be more or less a, a pharmaceutical corporation marketing program, um, and that's what it was. That's that's precisely what it was. Um, and, and it was also an opportunity to um, to ridicule and put down uh, and portray as slightly unhinged. Um, anybody that questions the vaccines whilst whilst absolutely avoiding any discussion at all of any of the science or the facts or the evidence or 
or anything like that. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's bring this on screen then. So uh, here's Professor Hannah Fry. Uh, the uh, documentary, in inverted commas, was called Unvaccinated. Uh, and it is actually available on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a YouTube uh, uh, link there, um, which will be in the show notes later. So if people want to watch it, they can. Um, I was in that. I couldn't watch it. I haven't got a TV license. I don't have a TV. Um, and so, you know, I had to wait to, to see it. But fortunately, there it's, it's popping up on the Internet um, um, so that we can watch it. OK, so let's have a look at uh, Professor Hannah Fry then. Uh, professor in the Mathematics of Cities at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at University College London. What does that mean? Uh, well, if you look at her work, um, it's very much about managing behaviour within spaces. So it's, it's, a, it's about how it's about, if you imagine us like rats in a maze, funneling us around in, in urban spaces. That's very much what her work focuses on. It's about spatial planning um, and it's about spatial analysis. So, she, for example, she's done spatial analysis of the London riots um, and, and has suggested how we might construct cities of the future to contain riots more easily and that, that, that kind of thing. So how does, um, how does that qualify her to be a, an expert on vaccines uh, in order to make a decision on whether people that have a particular view in vaccines are correct or not? Well, she's got form in that. I, I, I don't know is the answer to your question, but she's got form in that area. She's, um, she's, I mean, she's a mathematician and a statistician as well. So, I mean, she has got that background, but she's not medically qualified particularly or, or you know, but she has done quite a lot of work um, on that area. Okay, so let's bring this on screen then. So uh, this is in March 2018, Fry hosted the BBC's Contagion that modelled a pandemic. Uh, and the quote here is, Hannah masterminds the experiment and adopts the role of patient zero by walking the streets of Hazelmere in Surrey to launch the outbreak. And then the other one that you've got on, the, on screen is a bizarre coincidence between Hazelmere coronavirus cases and BBC programme that started fake pandemic in town. And the quote is that Hazelmar, Hazelmere was indeed the first place in the UK to report a domestic infection uh, that was the ground zero for UK's next pandemic. The confirmed case on Friday, that was uh, February the 28th, 2020, I presume, uh, was the first yeah. patient to have contracted the virus from within the UK and saw a further three people infected within 48 hours of the diagnosis. So, so in 2018, she ran... Uh, and uh, a, a, a BBC event called Contagion that just happened to begin in the same place that the actual uh, Contagion began. Yeah, it's a truly remarkable coincidence. I mean, I don't know what the odds of that are. Um, you know, how many towns and cities are there in the UK? Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the first case should be in the town where she predicted and actually modelled where the first case would be um, was subsequently. It wasn't the first case in the UK. The first case in the UK was a gentleman that, that came over from China, but it was the first domestic infection yes. in the UK as, 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 uh, as Hannah modelled, which is a truly remarkable coincidence. Yes, thoughts? Not, not so much of a coincidence. So you remember 7-7? Uh, was it 2005? They ran a, a drill in the, on, on certain tube stations and buses, and as if by magic, uh, <laughs> terrorist attacks were carried out at those exact same locations on the same day. So they had to go from quick time planning to quick time doing, in the words of Peter Power. So these things happen all the time. I don't know what you guys are theorizing about yeah. with all your conspiracies. <laughs> yes, yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy, isn't it? I mean, all these incredible coincidences, and and I personally firmly believe in coincidence theory, so I think that's what we should stick with. Okay, uh, so uh, then we've got the farcical BBC promise, uh, a fake documentary on a topic they won't touch with the barge pole. I take it this is your article. What, yeah, is your... yeah. This is this is my article. Um, I've been fortunate. Um, Off Guardian picked it up as well, but they changed the title. I think probably because it wouldn't fit on the page, um, but but the but the point here is when they launched this this documentary, when they were talking about launching this documentary, 
Um, Tom Coveney from the BBC's BBC's commissioning editor, editor released a statement to go with it, uh, which we can see there. So with COVID infection on the rise again, so we're talking about a case-demic, I would suggest. We're talking about infections, number of positive tests being on the rise again. There couldn't be a more important time to examine the reasons why so many adults are still not getting the vaccine, which is a reasonable contention. Okay, fair enough. It, in this explosive debate that goes to the heart of modern life and growing mistrust in the establishment. So immediately they're introducing this idea about that the real problem is that we just don't trust the establishment. And it's notable that in the BBC's mission statement, it says trust is the foundation of the BBC. So we should trust the BBC because the BBC say we should trust them. What we, we don't need any more, we don't need to think about it any more than that. So in this introduction to this, so this was prior to the release of the actual documentary itself. This is what they claimed they were going to do. And this is what set my alarm bells ringing, which is why I wrote the post. So they want to fully explore the complex and deeply divisive debate. Okay, that seems like a reasonable thing to do, but how are they going to do that? Hannah's going to bring seven unvaccinated participants together under one roof and unpack the long-held opinions, beliefs and fears that have prevented them from getting the vaccine. Together, they will come face-to-face with leading experts confronting the latest science and statistics to emerge in the field and dissecting how misinformation spreads on social media. So, so immediately we can see, and this this was in the press release. This was this was prior to, to them putting the documentary out. That their idea of a complex of exploring a complex and deeply divisive debate is to take seven individuals, laymen and women, just bombard them with cherry pick science and scientific and expert opinion for seven for a week to try and convince them that everything that they know and everything they believe is actually all based on misinformation and disinformation. It is in their press release. So I thought it was a fairly safe bet to make a prediction about what that, what that documentary, quote unquote documentary, would entail. Okay, so let's just very quickly run through through these. So your predictions were that there would be no attempt to examine yellow card, VERS, or Eurovigil- uh, vigilance data. Uh, if it is mentioned, then the BBC will say there's no causal link, but won't point out that there's been no investigation. Uh, you said that key facts such as Public Health England downgrading the co- of uh, COVID-19, relative 2020 ASMRs, questionable admission records, UK Health Security Agency data on actual vaccine coverage won't be mentioned. The fact that three or four of the leading, sorry, three of the four leading jabs in the UK are still in phase three trials uh, and that all were approved without completing trials won't be mentioned. Uh, there'll be no mention that the trials were unblinded before completion. Uh, science that indicates reasons for concern won't be mentioned. Leading scientists, physicians, pathologists, statisticians and other qualified experts who question the vaccines won't be mentioned. And the BBC will support the forthcoming online safety legislation. So those are your main uh, I think or, or the the next four of these part of that as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I, no, I was just saying that, right. I, that, that basically what happened was that those that um, you know, it, 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 I must admit, it is with a certain amount of Schadenfreude, but nonetheless, those predictions were met. Um, but there, there were some specific things that were particularly concerning that actually came up in the documentary. Um, they certainly did, you know, throw in some some. Uh, justification and some support and a rationale to support the online safety, forthcoming online safety legislation. They had a whole segment on that where they actually brought in Will Moy from Full Fact, whose business, whose business model is selling um, fact-checking services and he is involved with the government commissioning of the Online Safety Act. Um, You know, they used him as an expert without disclosing that, of course, to the people or that were that were subject to this or the viewers, um, but the way that they managed the treatment of the the way that they discussed the trials and some of the claims they made about pre- pregnancy and fetal health, it was true truly astonishing. And I think we've got a video clip showing some of that. Yeah, we do have a quick clip here. Let's have a look at that. 
And she's not alone. Our survey suggests that when it comes to COVID vaccines, 22% of us have very little trust in our government. And a further 19% don't trust them at all. I suspect Vicky and Naz are part of this 19%. And I really want to understand what's at the heart of their concerns. But first, I want to find out why they didn't want to come today. Um, I chose not to come today because I've listened to researchers and doctors on the side of why you should take the vaccine. And I've listened to medical professionals who are saying that these are the reasons why you should not take this vaccine. So I don't think I would have gained anything new from this experience today. We felt that we can't actually openly, as adults, have an informed conversation with you about the statistics and the facts that we're talking about. All of the data our government made the decisions on, whether it was that we locked down children, whether it was they were forced to wear masks, whether it was that we were testing them constantly, they made all of those decisions about our lives, our freedom. There's so many things that I could say to you. It's so frustrating. I get the impression that you are very passionate about everything that's happened over the last two years. You want to have the conversation about data and statistics. I want to have that conversation too. So that's why I thought that we could sit down and, and have this chat. I think the most impacting and the most interesting for us to talk about right now would be trials. I want to talk about trials. Yeah. Is this yeah. an approved drug in the same way that when I take a paracetamol? Yes. Well, it's exactly the same. Hang Completely on, on, approved on. and not under emergency protocol. Oh, hold on. I can't, I can't just chase you around. No, no, I'm really sorry. There are different versions of the vaccine. It's possible for one version to be approved while simultaneously companies and the researchers are running clinical trials for subsequent versions. Okay. So those two things are not in conflict with one another. Okay. So every time that you get an adaptation to the vaccine, you have to go back through mm -hmm. the whole process and demonstrate not just that it works, but that it's safe. Vicky is right in some ways. The vaccines do indeed go on to phase four trials after approval, but this is normal. Phase four trials are the ongoing surveillance of the drug after rollout. Uh, Ian, uh, I've got to say, what Hannah Fry said there in that, at the end of that didn't ring true to me. Was she fibbing at all? Uh, it was. It was absolute one hundred percent disinformation. Uh, that that's all you can say about that. I mean, it, it was from top to bottom. What she said was misleading in every possible sense. Um, if we if we think about what she's saying, firstly, if we remember that the, the, the person that was questioning Vicky was asking about approval, so that was an that was an opportunity for the BBC to draw a distinction between an approval under an emergency author, authorization and licensing of a medication because they are two very different things. But they didn't. They chose not to do that. What she chose to do, or what the BBC chose to do, and I think we need to be wary of this as well, because obviously there's a lot of editing in this stuff, and we don't fully know what people said, but this is what the, what the BBC put out, was to conflate approval under emergency authorisation with licensing. That was the intent of that statement. That's, that's how that statement begins, and she starts this narrative about... about trials and and without mentioning of course that as she quite rightly said if we if we look if we move on to the next the next slide mike if we if we look at that um that conversation that statement there are different versions of the vaccine it is possible for one version to be approved while simultaneously companies and researchers are running clinical trials for subsequent versions so what she's talking about there is that that is that is true. That's all reasonable. So these two things are not a conflict with one another. That's true. So every time you get an adaptation of the vaccine, you have to go back through the whole process to demonstrate that 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 just that's just how it works, but that it's safe. Now that is not true. So Firstly, what, what she's done is she's spoken about phase four trials without informing the viewers that the vaccines haven't completed phase three trials. So whilst it's normal for the vaccines to go on to phase four trials, it is also normal that they complete third phase first. So this, this, this is totally misleading. She's then put this statement out, which is wrong. It's false. It's not true. 
we can go even as far back as March 2021. The MHRA stated that for the what they're calling tweaked vaccine, so this is the, the, the new version of the vaccine for the, the um, next variant, whatever they want to make up, right? So the, the next version of the vaccine will not require testing. It's not true what she said. The MHRA said regulatory authorities do not consider an updated coronavirus vaccine to be an entirely novel product with the resulting requirement for lengthy full-blown clinical trials. So from a clinical perspective, clinical efficacy studies prior to approval are not required. So what the BBC are telling the British public is a lie. It is not true. Yes. Okay. Okay. So look, Ian, uh, we're, we're short of time, so let's just move on. I just want to end this segment, if we could, with, uh, with the BBC's undisclosed conflicts of interest, because I think this is really key. Yeah, so, so Professor Norman Fenton, he, he looked at this and he realised that the, the people that they were putting forward, again, completely duplicitously, the, the, the people that they were putting forward as independent experts weren't independent at all. So they sent these people to go and see um, a guy called Professor, uh, Professor Finn, um, who, was, who was actually um, the leader of Pfizer's Centre of Excellence for Epidemiology and Vaccine Preventable Diseases. He's not independent. The, the person that spoke about the pregnancies uh, and fetal health, which was which was shocking what she said, um, she's actually the principal investigator for Pfizer's COVID vaccine pregnancy trials. So, so these people work for Pfizer. They also cited, they also spoke about vaccine hesitancy at the beginning about how to overcome it with someone called Clarissa Seamass. And they again portrayed her. They did say that she was a representative of the Vaccine Confidence Project. But what they didn't tell us and what they didn't tell their audience is who funds and backs and supports the Vaccine Confidence Project. So its funders are GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, the European Commission. Its partners are Chatham House, Facebook, European Commission, the World Health Organization, then Public Health England, so presumably UXA now. Imperial College London, Wilton Park. So, so it's the omission of, of information which enables the BBC to cherry pick data. They don't present rational arguments. They didn't ask any of the any of the people who, you know, such as Mike Yeadon or Professor Sucrit Bakti or people like that to, to give their opinions. It was an outrageous propaganda attack on people's views and a marketing pitch for vaccines. Yes, and uh, our understanding is that the, the people that took part in that, the, the members of the public that took part in that uh, exercise, the so-called vaccine hesitant people that were there to have their minds changed, uh, have been quite outspoken already about uh, how bad the edit was, uh, you know, even beyond uh, what might have been expected from the BBC. Um, so hopefully we'll have more to say about that next week. Um, but it's, it's an incredible state propaganda exercise. And Professor Hannah Fry, is that her yes. name? Hannah Fry? I mean, very manipulative. Uh, it's almost like she feels like she has the upper hand over these plebs that they bring in to sort of bludgeon with this bevy of experts. I mean, why don't they have an actual debate of people with opposing views and sides like they used to do in the 1960s and 70s on television? People weren't afraid of it back then. Why are people afraid of doing that today. Um, so instead, you get this, which is just a real kind of perverted uh, attempt at uh, showing, you know, balanced coverage. I yes. mean, it's really bad. Uh, well, look, stay with us, Ian, but uh, let's move on, Patrick, then uh, to a fifth wave. With a fifth wave. Have you heard? Have you not heard about the fifth wave? Well, I'm sure it's here already. It's, it's on the way. It's on the way. Everybody's uh, crowing about it. Let's take a look here. This is USA Today in the United States. BA.5, have you heard about yes. this? This is the fifth wave, Mike. Get on board. Makes up to nearly 80% of new COVID-19 cases. It's the subvariant of choice. And so you can see this is basically every single major ma mainstream media outlet in the world right now is running stuff like this. Uh, we'll go a little further here. Who else is running here? Look at this. This is CNET. 80% uh, of all new COVID cases is from the new Omicron subvariant. Here's what you need to know. You can see the 
illustrations there are getting more detailed. You see the top of the little okay. corona there? Yes. It's got little spikes on it, that one. Uh, and so what else have we got? Oh, of course, the independent. Look at this little UK update here. Did you know this? Hospital patients are up by 37% as experts warn of a fifth wave. So that's 37% from what to what. We're not really sure. I didn't really read. But apparently the NHS said the bed demands at winter level uh, as 1.7 million test positive. So they're already at winter levels, Mike. Uh, but of course, uh, those are the bed demands that exist now after they've decimated the NHS and removed two-thirds of the number of beds that there were five years ago. And what about the waiting list? It's pretty long, it isn't is, it? Yes, it's certainly not getting any shorter. Wouldn't you think the whole thing's going to be full, right? I would think so. Yes. It's not because of COVID, but that's what they want you to find out. So the super jab, we've got a solution for this. Uh -huh. We'll go down under and look at this mainstream uh, report in, from Australia. But this is the same sort of thing they're going to be pushing here, which is an all-singing and dancing vaccine to cover all variants, past, present, future, and everything else. So let's take a look at this. Now, the latest wave of COVID has sent cases skyrocketing across this country and researchers are racing to create a super jab. Scientists at the University of Sydney hope to identify a single shot to cover all future variants. It's part of an international effort to develop a vaccine that's a step ahead of the virus. The team has been examining around 20 different options with one of the potential treatments starting human trials in Australia from early next year. Megan Stain is a virologist and part of the research team at the University of Sydney. Good morning to you. How would this vaccine protect against all variants? Hi, Natalie. Well, what we're looking at doing is combining some key features of existing variants that we've seen, as well as looking at viruses that circulate in nature and working away is to combine those into a single component, which will go into a vaccine and will then be able to train your immune system to recognize and fight all of these different variants that we've seen and therefore hopefully protect us against any future variants that emerge. So would you just have one or would you have one of these super jabs every year? Well, part of the brief that we've been given is we're trying to design a vaccine that induces long-lasting durable immunity and the vaccine platform that we're using will hopefully do that. I think it's probably a bit too optimistic to say it'll only be one shot that will protect you for the rest of your life. But ideally what we're looking at is hopefully something that you only need every two or three years. Mm. Megan, we are three years into this nearly. It has stumped the world so far, hasn't it? How hard is it to do what you're doing? It's really hard, you know. Um, it's, the vaccines that we have so far are, are amazing. Yeah. Anyway, enough I'm, of that. I'm sorry, that was a longer clip, but we had to cut it. Yeah. I'm not feeling well. But um, so it's three years, we're still in the pandemic. Yes. We're still in it. Absolutely still in it, yes. I can't see anybody outside getting sick, no masks. And apparently Australia is still in the pandemic. So what do you guys think? Do you think this is going to be full protection? Uh, this the, new super jab? Yes. Well, no. Uh, but but uh, what? No, of course not. But what is coming in? Uh, just very briefly, uh, GPs again today calling for us to get back to the mask mandates and so on. Yeah, I mean, well, some of us looked at this at the beginning and said, what we're looking at are control systems. This isn't about this isn't about a public health crisis. This is about introducing control mechanisms and controlling the population. You know, the, the, the philosopher George Aragamban spoke about the biosecurity state. That is what this has always been about, in my view, and, and I know in the view of, of, of a few other people. And that's what we're getting. This, is, this doesn't end. It never stops. It carries on. It'll, if it's not COVID, then it will be the next thing. It will be monkeypox or it will be whatever excuse that can be deployed in order to continue with the installation of the control grid. Right. That is what this is about. Well, thank you very much for that. Monkeypox, that's so last week, Ian. We've got a new virus. <laughs> We've got a new virus. Take a look at this. This is the hot new thing in America. Unvaccinated man in Rockland County, New York, diagnosed with polio. Now, I read this. I looked far and wide. I could not find how they actually diagnosed him. It's unclear. I'm guessing it could be a PCR test. Maybe it's just symptoms. I don't know, but this is the important bit here uh, that you need to point out. That's not actually a polio virus. Really? 
<laughs> just to remind people, it's an illustration of what people think a poliovirus might look like if they actually ever found one, isolated it, and uh, showed it to us. Okay. So there you go. That's that, that's the latest. So they're, they are ramping up the polio. We've covered this in the UK. Yes. They're doing a little bit of polio scare as well. So I want to point people to this incredible, really incredible report here. Uh, this is by F. William Engdahl, someone we all know very well over the years. Uh, he's a best-selling author. And this is uh, Toxicology versus Virology, the Rockefeller Institute, and the Criminal Polio Fraud. This is a really stunning report, very well researched, as you'd expect from uh, William Engdahl. Uh, let's just take a look at some of the highlights here. This medical takeover, backed by the most influential doctors' organizations, the American Medical Association, and its corrupt head, uh, Simmons allowed Simon Flexner, we're going back a few years here, uh, to literally create modern virology under Rockefeller rules. He's talking about the turn of the 20th century, just that time around the First World War and into the 1920s. This is when modern allopathic medicine and pharmacology really took shape and became industrialized. And of course, he's explaining how the Rockefellers had created effectively a monopoly, not just on pharmaceuticals, but taking over medical university colleges, mm. controlling the funding, controlling all the medical and peer-reviewed journals, okay? And he goes on to say about Flexner and his crew, they proclaimed that the Rockefeller Institute doctors had thus proven that uh, polio uh, myelitis, polio virus, uh, causality for the mysterious disease of polio. Uh, they hadn't done anything of the sort. And he explains Flexner and Lewis even admitted that we failed to utterly discover bacteria either in film preparations or cultures that could account for this disease since among a long series of propagations of the virus in monkeys, not one animal showed. In the lesions, uh, the cochi the uh, described by some of the previous investigators, we had failed to obtain any such bacteria from the human material studied by us. We felt that they could be excluded from consideration. So they actually didn't have the evidence initially for polio, and he concludes by saying here, what they did was to make a bizarre supposition, a leap of faith, not a scientific claim. So, so but that's just a taste of what's in this report. And if you understand the Flexner report and how important it was in sort of that timeline of modern medicine. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of what we see in terms of vaccines and vaccine rollouts and, and broad claims made about pharmaceutical products and vaccines, a lot of this started at that point in history. Yes. So that's when it became very, very formalized. So, and again, William is a great, uh, he's been researching this almost his whole you know, adult life. Um, and so this report, I think, is a real culmination of his research um, at this point. It's also available, of course, at his blog, williamangdahl.com. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, Ian. Ian, very quickly. Yeah, just, I mean, that. They, also, this was at a time when the Rockefellers were, were building their oil and banking empire. And, and one of the interesting things about it is that oil is obviously needed for the production of most of the allopathic pharmaceuticals. So this is all all tied up. I mean, they did a similar thing in the, in the U.S. with getting rid of electric vehicles and electric. You know, the the, the U.S. had an extensive electric tram system. The Rockefellers and, and others like that that were pushing their agenda were behind getting rid of all that. They, they constantly do this kind of thing. Not only that, but the 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 rollout of uh, say the polio epidemic coincided with the rollout of something called DDT. This is a toxic chemical. It was also uh, managed and produced by the military at the time as well, but it was a pesticide. But it was also used as cleaning products in houses and things like this. And when they pulled back on DDT, then you started seeing the polio cases, cases recede. Um, so the mass vaccination program, it's important to point out about polio, um, the, the vaccines came after the decline in polio cases. That's yeah. really important to look at those charts and you look at the introduce, introduction of glyphosate, for instance, also around the same time. So what William is saying here is that we need to look at all the toxic uh, factors and variables in our environment and not just focus and have everyone gaslit on the virolo virology uh, arguments as well. And so he presents the uh, the evidence on this pretty pretty convincingly. Okay, well, let's move back down under again. And uh, well, the uh, the old animal disease is back again, is it? Sure. If polio is not enough, if COVID's not enough, how about 
a animal vector-borne uh, disease. Uh, here, the foot and mouth is hit Australia. Look at this. So this is the big fear campaign right now. Down under, foot and mouth disease is back. So they're stepping up uh, quarantining at airports across Australia. We'll explain to you how this came to be. It's quite an incredible story in itself. So apparently they found this in meat products, Mike, in Australia. And I'm not talking about like fresh meat, like pork rinds uh, in an oriental supermarket. They found dead viral fragments, uh, allegedly. I looked high and low and I could not find the PCR mentioned, but I'm guessing that they used a PCR test to discover these dead nucleotides of this alleged foot and mouth virus found in these products. The other one was in a sandwich that was supposedly came in someone's bag, allegedly contaminated. So mats and everything put out airports. Let's take a look at this News 7 uh, news package here. This is beautiful propaganda. Watch closely, the Australians really show us how it's done. In cattle yards across the country, 30, 40. farmers were fearful, and now it's happened. We have detected foot and mouth disease in a small number of pork products for sale in the Melbourne CBD. It's the first time it's been found in shops. An absolute close call. The pork imported from China has been seized, along with infected beef at an Australian airport not declared by a traveller from Indonesia. The pork floss and the beef product did not contain live virus, but they do contain viral fragments. Carried on meat products, shoes and clothes, the disease infects cattle, sheep, pigs and goats, causing fever and blisters, but rarely affecting humans. Thank God it hasn't got into the stock. Because if it does, it could mean the destruction of millions of animals, decimating Australia's meat and livestock industry and wiping $80 billion from the national economy. What do you think is going to happen to your food bill? It's going to go through the roof. It would shut down the movement of all livestock immediately. Your abattoir workers out of a job. Your stocking stations out of a job. Your transport operators out of a job. The farms out of a job. To prevent that, the government has ramped up biosecurity at airports. Every passenger from Indonesia screened. More detector dogs deployed. And today, sanitised foot mats are being sent to every international airport. Which will dislodge dirt from the sole of people's shoes and cover it in acid. But critics say with the recent outbreak in Bali, the border to Indonesia should be shut. Rob Scott, 7 News. Good propaganda. They do good propaganda. They do, they? yes, yes. Down under, that's just a hell of a report. So you notice that decimating the economy, decimating our livestock, like the virus or the threat of a foot and mouth virus, which is a cold virus, allegedly, for cattle and for cloven foot animals. And so it's, they don't say that it's the government shutting down or, or culling the livestock that's ruining the whole livestock industry. It's going to, it's not government policy or crazy decisions like we saw in Britain in 2001, where Tony Blair took it upon himself to basically destroy the UK's farming industry. On the back of Neil Ferguson's statistics. Oh, there's Neil Ferguson again. Yes. So he, uh, he was promoted after that. Yes. So it has nothing to do with government. It's all about a virus, okay, or the threat of a virus slaughtered on suspicion is the name of the documentary film. So the documentary made, we made called Slaughtered on Suspicion is back on the front page of the UK Column website. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Uh, if to get some context on this, if you scroll down to the Editor's Choice section at the bottom, you'll find it there. So here's the other offending article here. So this is a, an Instagram model, I guess, an, an influencer or something like this. I, guess, I don't know what they're called here. Uh, but so she was basically, she had a half a Subway sandwich, six inches of a 12-inch sub, She's coming back from Bali, had it in her bag, undeclared. And so she's been fined by the Daily Mail's all over this, by the way, as you can imagine. Model, this could be any girl with an Instagram account, by the way, these days. She was slapped with a $2,664 fine, uh, bringing in a half-eaten Subway sandwich. And the Australian authorities are having a go at her. She deserves having the book thrown at her for this. So uh, allegedly, it's alleged infected beef, okay? So no one can confirm whether there was actually foot and mouth in her Subway sandwich or not. Subway sent her a voucher for 2,664 pounds. She's excited. She feels like she's won the lottery, but she hasn't actually gained anything but a whole lot of calories coming down her way uh, in the next couple of months. So there she is. Look at this. Jessica Lee failed to declare this Subway sandwich while traveling from Singapore. Okay, it was, it was Singapore. So Mr. Watt, that's the uh, agriculture minister there. 
MP said that the fine she received was fair and that uh, Customs is set to crack down on these type of offenders, people like her. She's enjoying her Subway uh, swag uh, bag there. So that's great. So the, but the fear porn is off the charts. Look, look at this. This is another influencer on Twitter, an NGO type person, apparently. Listen to what she has to say. It gets even more hyperbolic. Good morning all, this is Maz coming to you from the shores of Lake Mulwala with a little message particularly for our more urban friends. So most people in Australian agriculture now are aware we have a horrific disease called foot and mouth disease up in Indonesia and Bali. Uh, and for that we are terribly sorry for our Indonesian friends and colleagues because this disease is horrific. It's extremely cruel and it's massively important that we keep it out of Australia. So foot and mouth disease essentially scabs up and rots off the mouths and feet of livestock. So they have to be euthanized. Uh, in Britain it happened and they euthanized millions of stock. So pet goats, all like herds and flocks of sheep and cattle. Um, the, the, the ramifications if this disease get to, gets to Australia will be immense. It will destroy families, rural communities, but importantly, it will also destroy your ability to eat safe Australian grown meat. Um, so my ask is please wash everything that you uh, bring back and better still bring your clothes, leave your clothes and your shoes over there. Um, it, uh, you know, support the local economy, buy clothes over there and then leave them over there. It's how we're going to keep your capacity to eat beautiful Australian meat safe for future generations. Thank you so much. That's what the Daily Mail chose to boost, basically. Yes. So that's the sort of commentary you're getting in the UK media, okay? So they're totally backing this foot and mouth um, hysteria. And I might add there, so there's a real uh, attack now on pork uh, from Indonesia and from China. So they like to see a halting of pork uh, imports in Australia. So this is this goes under the war on meat, yeah. the broader banner. There's also got a geopolitical uh, dimension as well with the Chinese pork. It's a huge industry. So again, this is viral fragments detected from a PCR test. Uh, so you know a lot of what she said is simply not true. Here she is. Uh, let's take a look at. Uh, we'll put her on screen. Catherine Marriott. She's on Twitter. Non-governmental and non-profit organization. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, New South Wales. So she's one of the many influencers that the, our media call on to keep the fear going. I mean, total. Uh, fear porn. Uh, yes, indeed. And, and uh, Patrick, uh, with respect to the, uh, the lips and uh, hooves dropping off, um, one of the points that was made in Slaughter and Suspicion was, of course, there was lots of wildlife that was never captured or culled uh, during the 2001 outbreak in the UK, uh, cloven-hoofed animals. Um, and like deer, for instance. Like deer, for example. We didn't see them all lying dead with their lips and, uh, and feet dropping off. Um, no. So we didn't see a lot of actual foot and mouth in 2001. Most of it was slaughtered on suspicion. Yes. And so the argument that this woman made is the same bogus argument they made in the UK at the time. Yes. So we need to slaughter them now to prevent from having to euthanize them later. So it was a sort of like compassionate preemptive yeah. action or something. Yes. And, uh, un unbelievable that people haven't even done the analysis or even thought about what a absolute catastrophe that was in 2001. Yeah. You'd think the Australians could do a little reflection. Some journalists could do a little report and say, hey, maybe they got it wrong in the UK. Maybe we shouldn't be as stupid and as hysterical now. Maybe we should calm down and you know be sober about this. That's not happening, as you can see. Yes. Okay. Uh, Ian, any final thoughts on this before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, we need to, I think I often look at these things and we need to step back and think about what, where we are with all this, because we are currently living in a, in a world which is, which is based around the idea that we should be frightened of pretty much everything. You know, although things like foot and mouth and that have happened before, and we've had diseases before, and we've had illness before, we've always managed to, to, to get on with life. Suddenly, we are being told and we are being convinced that we can't do that anymore. We just really need to step back and think, how has that change happened? Where has it come from? And why should we believe it? 
Yes, indeed. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, let's move to the United States, Patrick and uh, Joe Biden. And the question is, uh, when will Joe go? That's the question on everybody's mind, Mike. Uh, when will Joe go? I think we got a little clue this week that he might be going sooner than later. We'll see. So Joe Biden made the sort of accidental admission or intentional admission that he has cancer or had cancer. Let's look at this video clip from this recent press conference here uh, with the desolate backdrop, which is totally appropriate yes. for Joe Biden. But go ahead. Just up the road, a little school I went to, Holy Rosary Grade School. And because it was a four lane highway that was accessible, my mother drove us and rather than us be able to walk. And guess what? The first frost, you know what was happening. You had to put on your windshield wipers to get literally the oil slick off the window. That's why I and so damn many other people I grew up have cancer. And why can't for the longest time, Delaware had the highest cancer rate in the nation. So that clearly caused quite a furore, Patrick. And the White House then said, well, actually, he was referring to the the non uh, to the the skin cancer that he had before he was uh, inaugurated and uh, and had that skin cancer removed. Was he doing that or was he letting something slip? This is the question on everybody's lips. It's hard to tell. So so we asked the question, does does Biden have cancer uh, immediately uh, or is he is he have dementia and he just got it wrong? Or is he doing what a lot of Democrats do, try to insert themselves into every single story and narrative in order to elicit compassion from their audience, um, which is something Hillary Clinton does. And it's a bit of a habit, especially with Democrats. So, so what do they do to try to distract from this? Uh... Well, not not 12 hours later, this comes on to the major story here. Joe Biden tests positive for COVID. Okay, so it again goes into uh, lockdown. He's in he's in quarantine right now. Everybody's kerfuffling around. To, oh, is Joe? How serious is it? He says he's double boosted. He says he's double vaxxed, double boosted, double vaxxed, still gets COVID, whatever. So, so that's the question. Does he have COVID? Does he have cancer? Certainly there's, there's now two reasons to maybe have him bundled up and moved out of the White House. Um, and the other one, of course, is, is dementia. Yes. And um, I'm, we're not making light of dementia in general. We're just saying that Joe Biden really makes a lot of gaffes and a lot of people are worried about his cognitive fitness. Yes. Okay, Here's, this is, he's talking about COP26 in the UK. We thought we'd throw this one out too. It's quite amusing, but go ahead. With American leadership back on climate, I was able to bring more world leaders together than we got a hundred nations together to agree that their major conference in Glasgow, England, to, I mean, Scotland, to change the emissions policies we have. We've made real progress. Uh, so he did manage to correct himself. So it, you know, understandable. So pre you can't expect presidents to know basic geography or anything like that. No, not anymore. No one's perfect. Yeah, indeed. Right, okay. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the UK column shop. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, but do share any material uh, that uh, you see on various platforms. Now, we're just uh, running out of time, so we're going to do uh, a quick little bit of uh, schedule editing here and we'll move forward to Ukraine, Patrick, and uh, let's see what the latest is. Yeah, we'll just do a very, very quick update here to let people know what's going on uh, with this conflict. So, you know, we see desperation from the Zelensky regime. They're conscripting young people, minors and older people as well. Uh, over in Kiev, same sort of thing. So there's a lot of desperation in terms of finding the manpower to send to the front line. There's protests that are happening as well. Residents don't want to be sent to the front line. Kharkiv, they're shelling along the whole contact line. So what does that mean? That means that this is going to become a major battleground in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you've got the HIMARS systems that are being deployed fresh from the United States. Um, those are going to be targeting places in Donbass, Slavonyansk as well. That's a really symbolic and important uh, area as well. So the, the fighting is intensifying um, there. And all of these areas here, you can see that in the red, those are DPR and Russian Federation forces. They're surrounding a lot of these entrenched positions of the Ukrainian armed forces. They have been, th th this map is very different than what it was uh, two months ago. Yeah. So you can see the progress 
um, that the other uh, allied forces, they're calling themselves the allied forces, by the way, Russia, DPR, LPR. Um, so that's interesting. But you got the howitzer guns, the HIMARS, those are fresh from the United States and the other European countries, NATO deployments. So in Donetsk, Donetsk is being shelled, uh, missiles shelling coming from the Ukrainian side of the contact line. That's nonstop. A lot of residents are getting hit. We've shown that in the past as well. And then also in Zaporizhia and Mykolaiv down south. This is just north of Crimea here towards Kherson. You can see this is heating up. Those are going to be the new front lines in the next couple of weeks, probably by the end of uh, uh, July, beginning of August. And so Kherson is interesting as well. Ukraine armed forces with the backing of NATO are going to make a play to try to uh, disrupt. They think Kherson is the Achilles heel of the Russian Federation and the DPR forces. So this is going to become a, a real flashpoint um, this summer. Um, so and again, back to Kiev, British stormers have arrived. They're being deployed. So those are SAMs. So this yeah. means that this would be to deter a Russian air force or airstrikes, which have been stepped up somewhat uh, in the next couple weeks. So that's what's going on uh, in there. Now let's look at, this is an important update here, Transnistria, okay? This is now open and is now admitted. The Republic of uh, Pridnistrovian, that's Transnistria, they run a poll, 97% of participants have voted for independence for the Republic and for joining Russia. So that's kind of a repeat of the Crimea. Uh, type situation where they're going to have a referendum. So Russia is now for the first time openly, openly talking about joining Transnistria and Crimea. And what's left in between that is Odessa. Yes. And so airstrikes and also missile strikes against military targets have been stepped up in Odessa. So it's not going to be long. I would say probably in August, you're going to see a new front opening right. up with Odessa. So, uh, or at least September. Um, as well. So, but yet what I just showed you, I would say is factual from what I've cross-referenced, but this is what CNN is saying here today, Russian bombardments around the clock on parts of Donetsk. So the Americans would think that Russia is, is laying siege to Donetsk. If, if you believe CNN reporting and most Americans who watch CNN, they trust it, most trusted name in news. And notice the white helmets motifs here. Do you see that? Yes. Very good. So they're introducing a little bit of the first responder uh, activity there. But this is the result. This is, Ukraine, this is the chief of staff of Zelensky. Ukraine must win by the winter. So they're going to turn it around and they need to win this war before the winter. Based on what we've just showed you, what do you think the odds of that are going to be? Zero. I, I can't see how this is possible. It's almost like there's this kind of bubble that, that a lot of these, uh, the, the Americans, the British, this NATO, Zelensky's aides are, are living in a bubble. So look at this. This was just announced. Germany, we'll translate that here. This is from Merker.de. Uh, Germany is planning a grain bridge with Ukraine. This is to transport grain from uh, Ukraine to Germany using trains on railroads, multiple trips per day. Mm. So going in both directions. What? What sort of alarms go off when you see something like this? Well, if grain is some kind of uh, new pseudonym for uh, weapons, uh, then that might raise an alarm. Could be grain going one way and something coming back mm -hmm. on the return trip. So it's, let's suppose this became an issue and Russia says, well, we don't want those those types of weapons I mean, coming. I can see the headlines now. Uh, you know, Russia cuts off grain supplies from Ukraine once again. We, You know, the pressure is going to come on. Yeah. Putin it just goes for the food supply and he, yes. he's causing famine. And you know what? This is announced today, okay? At the same time as this is announced, yes. Ukraine and Russia sign a deal to reopen grain ports brokered by Turkey. So is it a coincidence that those two announcements are being made on the same day? Probably not. So this is interesting. And then back to the uh, reports, you probably heard that Putin is uh, got cancer, that he's got this, he's got that. How many times have you seen a report over the last four months that Putin is... A daily Mill carries them uh, every day, practically. Well, William Burns' uh, CIA head has weighed in on this. This is what he said recently uh, in a discussion in Aspen, I believe, at the security conference. As far as we can tell, he's entirely too healthy. So he says that with a little bit of um, reticence there. He's, he they wishes it wasn't so, but Putin, unfortunately, is quite healthy. 
uh, and Burns notes that this is not a formal intelligence judgment. He's just making a, a comment there, but I think we could probably take that on board. So that's the dispelling some of the myths that Putin's ready to keel over. Yes, so indeed. Uh, well, look, I just we, we are out of time, but there is one section I do want to cover, and that is the issue of uh, energy, Patrick. And uh, because this is uh, pretty significant, sort of brings us back to the cost of living situation. Uh, but what's going on in France? This is an incredible story. So EDF, this, this, this affects us in Britain too. Yes, of course. Yes. Many of our listeners, uh, our, our viewers, are they use Supply EDF. That, yes. Yeah, so this is the French supplier here. So France is going for full nationalization of EDF. This is more or less a done deal. Um, they've made an offer, 53% premium on the shares. Funny enough, um, this is to fully nationalize the remaining 16% was in private ownership. The state already had 84%. Yes. So this is to finish it off. The question, Mike, is why? Why is this happening? They say it's because they need investment to uh, repair a lot of the broken reactors. Uh, can they not get investment from the private sector? This is the question. Why is the state doing this now? And we might have an answer for that. But look at this. This is the run-up to the deal. In the weeks before this was announced in July, we saw a massive uh, 30% jump in some cases in shares volume. So a lot of people got in, um, um, bought shares before the announcement. So they would have made an absolute fortune. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. Probably not. That's effectively insider trading. So those are just the opportunists. So we're not going to say that this is the reason why they nationalized. That's just a byproduct, I think, of it. So let's look at the big picture here. And this is a statement, this is a Francois, you can, you can find this and then run it through Google Translate. Uh, let's listen to what their, uh, their translation on this headline. You will pay three times. Mm. So they made the argument there's no reason to nationalize, at least for the reasons they're giving. Um, they're calling it the Sovietization of EDF. And this is an interesting comment. And a lot of people aren't aware as well that uh, France, uh, EDF runs six power plants in the UK. And one of those they're also developing here, this is the Hinkley uh, Point C nuclear power plant. Which just got the full go ahead uh, just a couple of days ago, by the way. It did, but they're, they're already, CEDF is 3.5 billion underwater. That's a joint venture with the Chinese, by the way. It's not just EDF, uh, it's uh, C CGN, uh, the Chinese uh, power provider is developing that in tandem with EDF. A lot of people aren't aware of that. Boris doesn't make a big deal about that when they're, when they're doing their anti-China uh, uh, approach there. So, so there's a lot of problems with EDF. There's 60 billion in debt. And what else they've got? They've just lost, effectively lost 9 billion on a hydrogen plant that isn't providing very much power at all. They've got 15 reactors that are offline. And the big problem is this. This is a potential bomb here. Corrosive steel in the diesel backup uh, underground bunkers. That's why Fukushima had the meltdown is because the backup power could, couldn't supply and keep the reactor, uh, the cooling uh, of the rods and so forth. That created the Fukushima meltdown. So this is apparently an endemic problem through France's whole nuclear fleet. The government's just saying it's only half of them. But this writer and some other journalists in France, and by the way, there's some good journalists in France. Mm. We just don't see a lot of their product because it's in French. Mm. But th they think this is a, a systemic problem. This is a potentially multi-billion dollar problem. So again, chalk this up to another multi-billion dollar red flag on EDF. And also, so um, we'll, we'll talk about this as well. This is interesting on the green energy front. You, you heard about the forest fires in Bordeaux recently. Yes. This is interesting. Uh, a French researcher has pointed this out uh, to us here. And there's Macron posing in the fire helmet as usual. But uh, Sukats is the location around where that fire is. This is also happens to be the very same place they're trying to build the biggest solar uh, facility. I think in total it's uh, 25 square kilometers or something like that in pretty much the same area. Um, so just a coincidence. Another, <laughs> we're so not, many coincidences in the world. We're not conspiracy theorizing here. We're just saying that it's an, it's an interesting uh, coincidence. But what, again, why is it going back to the state? What apparently I think it's to launder the losses of EDF. EDF yes. is a disaster. It's sinking. So the question is, if this was an American firm, what could they do? They could just you know run up a deficit. But if you're in the EU, you can't just as a national government run up a, a euro deficit. There's other ways you can raise money by selling bonds and things like this. So the, a non-sovereign country, i.e., a European member state, they have to go where 
if they want to get bailouts for these types of big, big projects. European Central Bank. European Central Bank. So when he said the Sovietization of EDF, that's actually very prescient, mm. um, that comment. So is this what we're going to see? Because if, the, if Brussels can control one of the biggest power providers in Europe, if you're talking about this green energy boondoggle and you know uh, cutting the, the legs out from under some of these companies mm. uh, to move towards wind and solar and have power cuts and all the problems that we're seeing around Europe, wouldn't this be best managed by Brussels itself? Of course. So uh, we're, we're asking, why is Macron, why are the French totally trying to nationalize EDF? And what's this going to mean for, for Britain as well? Yes. Uh, uh, we're, we're Brexit, right? Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but are we? Because if, if you don't control your own energy, you're not sovereign. It's as simple as that. It is. Uh, okay, well, we've got we've to leave it there. We've got one final uh, comment, but before we come to that, uh, Ian, have you got any thoughts on what what Patrick's just uh, presented? Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, we're not sovereign in energy at all, are we? I mean, we're importing loads of energy from France as it stands, you know. And then, and now, I mean, I know that there's talks about the Chinese being invested in these micro nuclear power plants, these these small smaller uh, nuclear power plants that China are heavily invested in. So, I mean. Energy is a global, energy is a, a global uh, marketplace and it's a global operation. And, you know, it's no surprise. I mean, what it looks like with that ADF thing, that's the first time I've seen it. But what it looks like to me is people making a killing, a short, quick buck, passing off all the problems to the, as you said, to the ECB, which means what? The taxpayer. Absolutely. Well, the, when, it, when they did the EDF original consortium, the, the, the share prices hit a peak in around 2005. It's just been a downward decline ever yes. since. We've seen this with other projects in this country after privatization, yeah. early peak, everybody, and then all the early investors cash out, they make their fortune, and they're set. And meanwhile, the thing just becomes worth almost nothing. It's saddled in debt and things like that. They, were, they, were, they couldn't charge the customers in France uh, premiums for power. Otherwise, the French would be out on the street, right? So what they did, so the EDF is giving power away. It's costing them more um, than what they're getting back from the customers. Yes. So the, the debt is just increasing by the week. So I don't know what the solution is going to be for this, uh, other than it will have to get a bailout at some time in the future. Well, I think that's what this is preparing for. Okay, well, let's uh, finish then uh, with uh, Blaise Media and uh, Tennis legend Martina Navratilova says uh, what we're all thinking about the trans swimmer Lear Thomas Woman of the Year nomination. They couldn't resist the, uh, the sports association here. They had to double down on the Leah Thomas. That's, uh, that's a man wearing a woman's swimming suit there, big man with big shoulders who believes or identifies that they're a woman and basically blew doors and destroyed the biological female competition this past year. Martina Navratilova, obviously one of the most decorated professional female athletes in the history of sports. She's pushing back against this absolutely insane uh, nomination to nominate a man as woman of the year. <laughs> I mean, for swimming. I mean, so uh, it's it's kind of like getting ridiculous now. You know, they're not, but, but they're not backing off. You can see these governing bodies and it's very political. Pushing as hard as they yeah. possibly can. Okay, well, we've got to leave it there. We're going to do uh, some extra uh, and cover a couple of the things we missed on the main news. Uh, hopefully, Ian, uh, Ian will stick with us for that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, if you're not following us, sorry, you're not a UK column member, and so you're not watching extra, hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining us, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.